welcome to the new setup. You like it? Cool, 12 of you like it. Awesome, we worked all hard for nothing. Um, so let me just kind of give a rundown of the next couple weeks and what's going to be happening because uh, if this is your first summer, if you've got involved with us, you do, they're coming and you'll understand what I mean by that in a second. So um, we had a nice small summer in the room. It was great, but um, by the end of last semester, we were running out of seats basically and these chairs are really expensive um, and we don't have money as a church. So we said, how can we turn this, how can we situate this room to where we can utilize the stadium style seating? Basically, in my vanity, I wanted to look important and have stadium style seating, so that's what we're doing. Um, I am vain, there's my pride. Uh, so we, we switched it around, Sydney and her team, Daniel and Peter did an incredible job last night helping us kind of try this thing out, but here's, just so you know, Sarah, can you turn me down a little bit? Uh, here's what you need to know. This is an experiment. This might try and fail, and if the screen falls on me while I'm preaching, just go with it. Um, don't laugh, that'll hurt my feelings, but um, just like help me pick it up and then don't make it weird. Um, but we're, there's some trial by fire that we're going to have to learn here, but uh, I think it looks incredible, and I think it helps the growth, because um, in two weeks, college students are coming back, um, and then we just kind of things go haywire till about October, then things calm back down and everything's good. So uh, just here's, here's where we're going. We'll, we'll kind of wrap up, we might have part two next week, but a wrap up the series this morning and we'll have, see, stuff like that, just roll with it. Um, then we'll go into a four-part series about who we are as a church, what the church is. Um, that, that is a loaded word, especially with us being a new church, a church plant. Um, we get accused often of like, oh, y'all are just trying to like stick it to the man or like create this new thing. And so what we're going to do is just uh, go through Acts chapter 2 and prove that we're not trying to do anything new or fancy or impressive. We're trying to do a really old thing. What we see them do in the book of Acts is what we're trying to do. And um, so we'll spend a couple weeks doing that, um, and then we will move into uh, the fall series of Joshua. So we'll spend about 10 or 11 weeks going through Joshua, and then we'll go through four weeks of Advent, and we'll have Christmas together. Isn't it great? Like, Christmas fans, anyone? Yes. All right. So that's kind of where we're going in the next couple weeks. So um, in two weeks, three weeks, two weeks or three weeks, we'll be launching MCs back up, so make sure you're paying attention to that. Um, but today... Apart from the new setup is the last Sunday fun day of the summer. Um, so Daniel alluded to it at the beginning, but here's what we need to know. Uh, it's at the lake, which I don't, and I'm not trying to get morbid or weird, but uh, I don't know if y'all have been tracking. I think there's been 11 or 12 deaths so far in the lake. Um, so just, just here's my plea, and I'm not even, this isn't a plea, like this is in direct order. I'm going to pull my pastor card here. It's not pastorly, this is just, don't jump into the lake without a life jacket, because here's what's going to happen. You're going to drown, you're going to die, your family's going to sue my parents, then they're going to have to sell the house to pay the lawsuit, and then there goes my inheritance, and then I'm going to be really upset. So <laughs> don't do that, um, please. I want that house. I want them to go ahead to glory, give me that house, and then we'll be good. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm, they're right there. They know I'm kidding. They're both wearing white, very heavenly anyway, so just ascend up and we'll be good to go. Uh, but, but in all seriousness, I'm, I'm kind of making light of this because this is a deeper subject. Just don't jump into the lake without, you can be on the dock, you can be in a boat, whatever, but please, if you're going to jump into the lake, just wear a life jacket. It's about 16 to 20 feet deep around their dock, and so if you go in, it's murky water. We're not going to see you. So Apart from that, we'll have a great fun time. Just don't jump in without a life jacket. Deal? Good. All right, Luke, or excuse me, John chapter 14. It's where we're going to, John, 
I said Luke because we've been in Luke for three years. Sue me. John chapter 14 is where we're going to be. Uh, and we're starting to land the summer series. We've been just looking at the attributes of God, right? So, so who is God? And, and ultimately, why does that matter? Um, and, it, and it matters a ton. If our faith is rooted in God and what he's done and who he's like, then, then we have to know who he is. Not many of us would say, I, I'm, I'm cool marrying a stranger. Like, my friends vouch for this person, so yeah, sure, I'll, I'll get married next Saturday to someone I've never met. As long as you think this person's cool, I'm down with that. That doesn't really happen, but for some reason, especially in the South, we have that kind of feeling against God. Like, yeah, my friends like him, so like, sure, I'll, I'll be a Christian, I'll follow after God. Well, we know really nothing about him, his character, his attributes, anything like that. So this summer, we've gone through some of the easier, lighthearted ones like love and grace and mercy, but we've also looked at the wrath and the holiness and the justness of God. And so we're kind of landing that plane, and we purposely left this part out until this morning because there's a huge, massive clue of God's attributes that we're going to see this morning. So John chapter 14, and we're going to pick it up in verse 1. John 14, 1, we'll kind of open up where we're going, and then we can dive in. John chapter 14, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. This is Jesus talking. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's houses are many rooms. If not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take, excuse me, and will take you to myself. There where I am, you may be also. So just some setting for here. Jesus is talking to his disciples uh, because he's about to go to Jerusalem. He's about to be murdered by the hands of the Romans and the Jews. So he's trying to give them this last moment of peace. Like, look, I I've got to go. I'm going to leave earth, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. Don't, don't sweat it. Don't worry about it. And if you ever just felt incompetent as a Christian, you're in good company. Because let's look here, verse 4. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So Thomas, I, I kind of like Thomas in this story. He kind of gets a bad rap later, but, but he's very, being very inquisitive. Like, I, I want to know everything, Jesus. Tell me everything. I want to be crystal clear. Where are you going and how can we get there? Verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So here's where everything starts to turn. Here's where the disciples start to maybe understand here. That if you've seen him, Jesus, you know him, God. So ultimately what Jesus is starting to claim here is what's going to get him murdered in a, in a little while. That I am God and God is me. We are one and the same. I am the son, he is the father, but we are both co-eternal. But oh, poor old Thomas just doesn't get it. Thomas is, I mean, excuse me, Philip doesn't understand it. Thomas is asking questions, Philip doesn't understand, but Philip's that guy that's not afraid to say anything. So here's what he says. Philip said to him, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. All right, now just let's put ourselves in Philip's shoes and just to understand what he just said. He just looked Jesus square in the eyes and says, you're not enough, show us the Father and then we'll be good. So the same Jesus that healed people, that preached prophetic messages, that literally healed people from the dead, Philip just looked him in the eyeballs and said, you're not good enough. That's, that's a pretty bold claim. If you want to look about the patience of God, uh, Jesus should have just smited him right there. 
Jesus, you're not good enough. Just show us the Father. But if we're, not, if we're not careful, we can do this, right? We can either undermine the God of the Old Testament and raise Jesus too high in the New Testament, or we can raise Jesus too high. And, and so we have to keep these things. They are the same. They're the same person. God is Jesus, and Jesus is God. But Jesus, in his love, verse 9, responds this way. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So what we're going to look at as we start to close this series of the attributes of God is we're going, to, we're going to hold Jesus to his word. Jesus, if you are actually God, then you should carry the attributes that God has. So all that we've studied for the last nine to ten weeks, we should be able to pick any passage in the New Testament and start to see the attributes of God in Jesus. And the ramifications of this is huge. If Jesus isn't actually God, then what are we doing here? If Jesus actually wasn't the son of God that, that died the death that we deserved, if he was just a man that died on the cross for no reason, then, then what are we doing? Paul would say that we should be pitied the most if that's the reality. But what we'll see here as we just pick passages is that no, that this is true. Jesus is the son of God and that changes everything for us. Colossians, or excuse me, Colossians 1.15 puts it this way, that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So that's what we're going to look at, see how is Jesus the image of the invisible God and help to bring to light to some of it. Now, uh, there's two kinds of people in this room, the, the people that can just read and understand and the people that have to see it. Uh, so in my personal life, I'm on a quest to solve the Rubik's Cube, all right? I used to make fun of those guys in high school that did it, and here I am trying to, like, solve the Rubik's Cube, but I throw it, just TBH. I get really mad and chunk it across the room, and when the kids touch it, I get mad. I, I'm obsessed with that Rubik's Cube because Daniel, where's Daniel? Daniel lives in my basement and is a Rubik's Cube genie. I mean, he doesn't even have to, he's just in conversation, just flipping that thing around. This makes me so mad. So here's where, and Daniel doesn't know this, but here's the true reality. Daniel just keeps telling me, bro, just read the instructions that come with the cube and you can solve it. And I keep texting Daniel, hey, Daniel, come upstairs and show me how to do this thing. Because Daniel, he can read it, he can understand it, he can comprehend it, that's fine. You can tell me something until you're blue in the face, but unless I see it happen in front of me, I'm not going to understand. Anyone like that? All right, so we're the readers that can just read it and comprehend. Why are y'all so ashamed? It's okay. Raise your hands. Nerds, unite. It's fine. <laughs> now, we're like the practically you have to see it. All right, so for the last 10 weeks, we've read about it, but in this next passage, we're going to read, we're going to see it. We're going to see God in the flesh and his attributes coming alive. So flip real quick over to Luke chapter 19. We are going to go to Luke. Luke chapter 19, we're going to pick it up in verse 41. So we're going to read this passage and not necessarily exegete it like we normally do, but we're going to pick the attributes out of and prove that Jesus is God. He is the image of the invisible God. Luke 19, we're going to pick it up in verse 41. Luke 19, 41. 
And when he, being Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for these days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricades around you and surround you and hem you in every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus here is sitting on the precipice of going to Jerusalem, going to his death. He knows what's about to take place. And he sits there and he weeps. He laments over the fact that because the Jews, because the people he's been preaching to for the last three years, because the people that he's seen miracles and he's spent in the last three years with no money, with no job, just going around telling everyone that the kingdom of God is here, that he has came to made a way when there was no way, they have refused. They've resisted all that is salvation. And so he sits there and he weeps. He laments over the fact that, man, they're going to, they're going to die. There's nothing that they can do. So through this snapshot into Jesus, let's look at a few attributes. The first, maybe the most obvious one we see in verse 41 is God's love, that he draws near the city and he weeps over it. I think we can, especially maybe in the Bible Belt, kind of forget the love of God and we hear the fire and the brimstone and the wrath of God, which there's some truth to that. I think we take that to the extreme. But here we see the love of God on display that he sits there and he weeps, that he mourns, he laments over them. Because his love is so strong for them. And, and I'm sure we've all been in that situation on our own or we've had friends or family rebel or go a different way and, and our love for them is so strong that we just, we don't know what to do. We've tried so hard, we've done this, we've done that, we've tried to get them into counsel, we've tried to convince them of their sin or how they're going away, how they're leading their life to destruction and we sit there with our hands open, just going, oh God, what else? What else can I do to convince them? What else can I do to bring them in? And the emotion behind that is the love. He's so broken over them that his love just causes Jesus to sit there and weep. And the tone of this entire passage, let us not misread it, is a tone of love. Yes, there's some wrath that we'll get into, but all of that is breeded out of God's love for these people that we see manifest in Jesus. And we talked a little bit last week, but it was stinking hot and I was sweating in every pore of my being. So I kind of flipped through it. But this idea of the Old Testament love that we see of the ahava, the, the one way love. This is a love of the will. This isn't a love of condition like we so easily understand. That this is a love of the will that no matter what you do, I'm going to love you. So whether you come follow me, I'm going to love you. Or whether you reject me, I'm going to love you. And we see the patience that we just read about in the book of John, the patience with the disciples out of love. And here we see those that are rebellion, the love that God still has for them through his father or through his son that he's going to sit there. He's going to weep. He's going to mourn over them. So we have to understand, church, as, as we start to understand these attributes are also in us. What does our love look like for the world around us? It's so easy to love the ones that love us back. But that is worldly love, that is conditional love, that is love that we all on earth understand. But the ahava, the love of the Father, the one-way or unconditional love that comes from God that we see in Jesus made manifest, it's not just a love for his friends, but the love for the enemies. I mean, as Jesus is getting beaten seconds away from death, what does he say? 
Father, forgive them. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. What is that? What is that that they can, he can stand on the cross and look out and say, no, Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing other than a one-way love of the will. So we see the love just manifesting, God's love manifesting through Jesus. But we also see his patience. If we look at the end of verse 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus is saying this comment of lament that, man, how, how long are you going to rebel? I'm weeping over you. There's destruction that's going to happen because you did not know the time. Which they knew the time. Jesus had preached. There's no way that Jesus did not touch every single person in this region. They had not heard about him at some level. But he comes right back and says, you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, just think about this. If you had all the power in the world, all of that was wrapped up in you, and you had someone mock you, ridicule ridicule you, belittle you, what would you do? Are we going to act holy today? Because I've cut some of you off in traffic. I know what you do. (laughs) Right? You're number one. That's what happens real fast. Me too. I'm just being honest. So Jesus, knowing that he's God, we see this attribute of patience all over him. I mean, all the stories dealing with the disciples, how frustrating that had to be. Even days, weeks before his death, the disciples still not getting it. He's going, how, how long? I've been with you for this long. How long, how much more do I have to do to prove myself to you? He's constantly fighting with, arguing with, trying to prove to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day that he is, in fact, Messiah. He is the Son of God. And we see this ongoing patience just coming from him. 33 years he was there. 33 years he's been ridiculed, he's been abused, he's been made fun of. And that patience just continues to grow. And here's where maybe I'm taking a stab, maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but I think a lot of us need to hear this for us. Because I think we walk around on eggshells with spiritual things because we think the patience is about to run out. We think that if I do this sin, if I think, if I think this, if I do this, if I act in this one more time, that's it. God cannot love me beyond this point. Then I'm a screw up. I'm always going to be screw up. I don't deserve, I can't earn God's love because the sin I keep falling into. How long is God actually going to be patient with me? Because we've lost patience with ourselves. That there's no way God can love me because I cannot fix this thing. Bingo. Welcome to the gospel. If you could fix this thing, then why would we need Christ to begin with? Hey, church, here's what we need to understand. If you are sons and daughters of him, God's patience will not, has not, will never run out on you. Do we understand this? That there's no way, if we are sons and daughters, if we are believers, if we've been regenerated in the faith, there's no way that God's patience is going to run out on you. That doesn't mean death. Death equals sin. But that's not God's wrath upon you, believer. That is just because our time has run out, but that is not God's patience running out on you. And man, as I'm writing this sermon, this is the thing that just keeps wafting over me this whole week. Because I lose my patience all the time. I've got four kids that homeschool. Nightmare. They're always there. Always. Other than my oldest. Is Auburn in here? Okay. Other than my oldest, they're all crazy. <laughs> Auburn's the only sane one in this house. 
right? They're always, and my patience is constantly going off. And I just wonder, just me being me, I just wonder, man, is that how God views me? Is that his patience for me? Does he get so frustrated? And then I trip and fall on the stairs and catch a shinner and go, yep, I deserve that one. Like God's patience, he's just, that's a little smite, like straighten up, son. But that's, that's not true. That's not the patience that we see in the Old Testament God or even the attributes of Christ in the New Testament. He's always patient with us as believers. Here's what Romans 2 would say. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So when does God lose his patience? Not on the believers, not on the sons and daughters. That if we are made new in Christ, that that patience never ends, that wrath never comes. But for those that are far from God, the, the patience will run out. The wrath will come, and we need to remember that. The next attribute that we clearly see uh, happens in this passage. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. So he's pleading in his own words with Jerusalem, would not even you understand that the things that are happening are made for peace. So two weeks ago, Ricky teached on grace, and that's what's happening here. Would you not even realize that the only reason I'm here is for peace? The only reason I'm here is to bring you the peace, to bring you satisfaction, to bring you healing that you can never earn outside of me. So we see the grace of God all throughout the Old Testament, and we see that manifested in Jesus in the New Testament by even coming and walking on this earth, that the only reason I'm here is to bring peace. And one thing that Ricky mentioned a couple weeks ago is that God does both sides of bringing grace, that there's nothing that we have to do to earn it, there's nothing that we have to do to deserve it, that God has done everything for us in Christ to offer us grace, which has given us what we don't deserve. So Jesus, I mean, just put yourself in those shoes. I mean, if we had everything figured out for a person, we bought them a car, we bought them a house, we have everything situated, we're going, here, this is all for you, just take it. And they go, no, bro, I'm good. I'm just gonna walk over here. We're like, no, trust me, like, I've done all this for you. There's nothing you have to do. You don't have to pay me a dime. This is all yours. Just move in, have it, enjoy it. No, bro, I'm good. Uh, I'm gonna go back over here to my box in the woods. I'd rather stay here. But this is a Chevy. Take it. Just seeing who's sanctified in here or not. Jace, you can go. Right? This is the exact, not exact, because it's way more, but, but this is the feeling that Jesus has to have. I sit there going, I have free grace to offer you. Here's what it is. Just follow me. Just believe in me. I'll bring you peace that you cannot gain anywhere else. But the veil is covered over their eyes. So we see all the time through the Old Testament, God offering grace, not, God not giving them what they deserve, which is death on the spot. And we see the ultimate sign of grace being Jesus on the cross. He's going, you don't even recognize the peace in front of you, that I am grace. Take it. It's yours. Just come with me. Believe in me. Follow after me. 2 Corinthians 5.21, which might be one of my favorite passages of all time, puts it this way. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That doesn't define grace. I don't know what does. That in him, 
He made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin, to take our place on that cross. If you just want a simple definition of grace, it's Jesus in our place. Jesus in our place in every sense of that word. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might have the peace, that we might be the righteousness of God. But in his grace, they rejected it. And right after that, Jesus goes into this. But now they are hidden from your eyes. So as Jesus is weeping, he's going, how long? I've been, I've been with you. I'm, I'm the peace that you need. But now that you've hidden your eyes. Look, I'm just going to be very frank. You can't punch a lion in the face and not expect to get bit. That in God's patience, in his grace for you, there comes a limit. And if we're not, if for believers, we're in the clear, we're safe. But we're about to see here that, that God has to be just. In his holiness, he's so set apart that there has to be a punishment, there has to be a consequence for sin. And so we see this in the loving lament tone, but we see it clearly. They have hidden from your eyes that their time is over. And let's see what's going to happen. Verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you on, on one side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave, and they will leave not one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So in God's love, you cannot have love without wrath. You cannot continually reject him with a veil covering your face and not expect that there's going to be a punishment for that. There's grace and there's mercy and there's patience. But for those that are not yet followers of Christ, there is a time where the patience runs out. So you have Jesus walking to Jerusalem, walking to his death, knowing what's about to take place, weeping over those that are around him, that just in a few days later are going to be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. The same people, the same Jesus fan club that's throwing the palms on the road for this Palm Sunday, yelling out, Hosanna, Hosanna, are going to be yelling, crucify him, kill him, get him out of here. He's weeping over those people because their time has run out. But Jesus has preached the good news of the gospel. He's modeled it for them. He's brought the peace of the kingdom in front of them. And they've rejected it. And you can't punch a lion in the mouth without getting bit. So through that rejection, there's no joy in here. There's no, yay, we get to kill a bunch of people. There's a lament. There's a, a tears coming down Jesus' face for what's about to happen. But he's prophesying what's about to happen. That Jerusalem is about to fall. The kingdom is going to fall apart. And that's a foreshadowing of I mean, death is coming for you that you don't want to follow after me, you don't want to uh, become a believer, you don't want to call yourself a Christian, that, that's fine, but this is going to end bad for you. And Jesus gains no pleasure from that, but tears streaming down his face, he makes this prophecy. Luke 23, talking about the same idea, he said, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. That it would be better for us that in that day of rejection, in that day of wrath, coming, it would be better for us to have just massive mountains fall on us and destroy us than have to live through the wrath of God. 
So we see this all littered all through the Old Testament. We see the attribute of God constantly. His wrath burns hot for those that reject him, for the enemies of him. And we see this manifest through Jesus. That he's made a way when there was no way. But if you don't follow that way, if you don't come after Christ, if you don't count him more than yourself, here's what's going to happen. We see this attribute become very clear. So as we start to wrap this up a little bit, what, what does this series mean? Why was it important for us? And, and why are we ending with the attributes of God through Jesus? And I, I alluded to it earlier, but, but we really have to stop and ask ourselves, who do we think Jesus is? I mean, honestly, and we have to kind of fight through the South Bible Belt answer, like Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Sunday school answer, whatever the question is, just say Jesus and you're probably right. We have to fight through that. We have to reject that. We have to really ask ourselves, do we think that Jesus is God? And do we think that God made manifest in Jesus? Who do you really say Jesus is? And church, let me be frank with you. Don't answer with your words, but let me see what you're doing with your life. Because we can say whatever we want. I can compliment you. I can make you out to be the best person ever. I can make myself seem like this incredible guy that does this and this and that, and I've earned this much, and I work out this much, and I have this much in retirement, and blah, blah, blah. But do you really know any of those things are true? So when you're asking, when you're thinking about this, let it not just be head knowledge. Let it not just be Jesus is king. But, but what does that look like in our day-to-day life? Have we willingly laid down everything for the sake of Christ? Now, I'm not saying this process is easy by no means. What I am saying is we have this massive fight of cultural Christianity all around us. If you listen to country music for a song, you'll hear it. Get drunk on Saturday night, have a praying knee on Sunday. I can't believe I'd have sung that. Someone in this right now. Right? But we hear this all the time, that, that we can do this, we can live this life as long as we sit next to mama on church on Sunday. We're fine. We're good. Because we live in the south of this cultural Christianity. But, but is the God of the Old Testament the God of the New Testament? Because if you listen close enough, you're going to hear all these wacky opinions about that. That you can unhitch, that, that these are two separate things. We're just New Testament Christians. We don't really have to read the Old Testament. But I'm pleading with you, I'm screaming that it's the same story. What we read about the attributes of God in the Old Testament, we see in Jesus same person. It's the same thing. God is Jesus. Jesus is God, which makes all of this exciting for us that we see what he did for the glory of his name and for the joy of us. So do we see these two as the same? Because here's the other reality. If we don't, if Jesus was just a good guy, then Paul would say we should be pitied among most. Just a few years ago, 90% or 96% of Americans said that they believed in God. 96% say at, at some level, yes, we believe in God. Now, Jesus, I don't know, I don't know which God it is, but, but there is a God that we believe in. So we have to really ask ourselves, are we in that 96% that we just believe in a God, something higher, there, there's something out there, or do we believe that Jesus is God? Because those are two separate things. We have to answer that question. I think number two, and I alluded to this earlier with the Rubik's Cube, but, but it just helps us see God clearer. 
Because there's some things that we read in the Old Testament that, that really kind of maybe confuse us. And we'll, we'll see some of this in Joshua of just how many people died in that book. Holy cow. We'll I'll start to wrestle with and understand why that's true. But the easiest way to answer that is go to Jesus and see the character on display. That we see the patience of Jesus with his disciples. But we see the patience run out. So it helps us to understand and see Jesus in a more vivid manner. But if I can be honest, we see God, we see Jesus, but we also see the Holy Spirit in all of this. And for me, as, as we've wrapped up this series, why does all this matter? What do these attributes matter? There, there's two phrases that, that I want you guys to learn, the, the incommunicable and the communicable attributes. So there's some attributes of God that we cannot have, that those are only for God, but the communicable ones we can have, we can walk into. So what we see, the attributes of God in the Old Testament, we see this made manifest in the New Testament. We understand that those are in the spirit which is in us and we can walk in these attributes. So here's, here's what I mean. Colossians 2, 9 through 10 puts it this way. I think it's on the screen. Boom. That has not fallen. Good job, guys. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So in Jesus, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So all that the attributes of Christ are in us in the spirit. So as we're talking about what does it look like to, to follow after Christ? What does it look like to be sanctified? What does it look like to grow in our faith? I, I confess I'm not the most patient person. What does it look like for me to become more patient? The knee-jerk reaction is, well, try harder. Go buy a book on patience and work on it. But we understand through Galatians that the real answer is just trust the Christ that's in you. So what does it look like to have more love? You have all the love in the world in you. Stop trying, start trusting, and let the Spirit do what it does. You want to grow in your patience? Stop trying, start trusting, and see what the Spirit does. You want to grow in love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, all of that. Stop trying, start trusting, reveal the Spirit that's in all of us. So if we understand the attributes of God that we see clearly in the Old Testament, clearly in the New Testament, in Christ, we understand those are clearly in the Holy Spirit, which are in us. So we can stop trying, we can start trusting. We can rely on the Spirit that's in us. We don't rely on things often, do we? If we can't do it, then, then we're not going to do it. There's a quote I read by Paul David Tripp this week that has just tripped me up. Ah, uh, see what I did there? Just make sure you're with me. I think it'll be on the screen. God presents zeal is, God's present zeal is to deliver us from the remaining hold that sin has on us. This means that he will use the pressures, opportunities, hassles, burdens, griefs, temptations, and joys to grow us and change us. So if we're trusting in the spirit that's in us, we're saying, God, make us more like you. We've got to be okay with how God chooses to do that. That it might be through some really, really sweet times that we trust and we rely on the Father more and those attributes grow in us. Or it might be in some really, really hard times that the Spirit uses to grow us and change us to in His likeness. So what we shouldn't do, our knee-jerk reaction is to praise God when things are good and cuss and get angry when things are bad. But what Tripp is saying is that he's using all those things for our good to grow in us, to trust, uh, to allow us to trust him on a deeper level. So when we read about these attributes of God, 
We know that through the Spirit they're in us. We can walk in those. Stop trying, start trusting. So as we close up today, and I know the new setup, we've got communion over here so we can spread out a little bit. You can take your time through it. But here's the scripture that I want us to think through as we start to close out. Hebrews 1.3. That he is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. That Jesus is is God. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Did y'all catch those five words that are in the middle of this? So we, we see Jesus, who is the exact imprint of God, who is more superior to all angels. Jesus is God. But right there in the middle, after making purification for sins. After making purification for sins? After dying for his enemies. So we see the character of God made manifest in Jesus that even for his enemies, those that were rejecting him, those that were sinning against him, he came down as God in flesh to purify our sins. Look, this is the only religion out there that does this. Every other world religion, you have to earn God's favor. You have to do enough good deeds. You have to earn your way to God. But those are false religions. What we see is the opposite, that God in his perfection walked this earth making purification for our sins. That that is the ultimate attribute that we see in God, is that he is pursued, that he is sanctified. He's done everything for us to be Christ followers. So when we take communion this morning, let us remember that that is God in the flesh on the cross so that we can be sons and daughters. That is something that we shouldn't just jump right over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let us not be Philip, let us not be Thomas. If we could just see God, we would be happy. But what we see on the cross through the bread, through the juice, which represents his blood, is that God came after us in his love, in his perfection, in his attributes. God came after us to save us, to redeem us, to rescue us from sin and from ourselves. So a moment I'm gonna pray, the band will come back up, and as baptized believers, communion will be open for us. And we can just meditate on this and think about this. That who is God? The one that rescues sinners like us. So let's pray. Father, we are uh, humbled and grateful. You know, we, we know what your word says, that, that, that we might die for friends, but Father, you died for your enemies. God, that because of our sin, we were all once enemies to you. Now that when, when you sent your son to the cross, all of our sins were future sins. That at that time of the death on the cross, I was an enemy to you. That we were enemies to you because of our sin. But in your perfect love, in your perfect grace, you made a way when there was no way. 
Father, that you stepped out of heaven and you walked this planet sinless because that's who you are. And you willingly crawled up on that cross and purified us because there was no other way. Father, in your holiness, in your righteousness, that we deserve death, that there's nothing we could do to earn your salvation because sin has accursed us all. And Father, you made a way when there was no way. So as we take communion this morning, as we meditate on your attributes and who you are, Father, would we remember in your perfect love and grace and righteousness and holiness and mercy and all the attributes that you have, Father, you still came to make a way. You still chased after us. You still pursued us for your glory and our joy. You rescued us and redeemed us. So let that communion today wash over us. Let us be humbled by your love and grace for us. Let us remember that although we are wicked and sinful, you redeemed us, you rescued us. So it's not our performance, it's not our good deeds, it's not our works, Father, it's only because of you. So as Paul says, let us boast all the more in our weakness. Let us brag when we fall short because we're just making much of you, not much of us. So church, let us remember who we are in light of who God is. That we are sinners in need of a savior and our savior has come. That there's nothing that we can do there, there's nothing we can do now. Let us trust in him, let us rely on him. That that same God is in us. Let us walk in obedience. This just calls us to worship, church. This just calls us to celebrate, to rejoice. That we are sons and daughters. We are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come, not because anything we've done, but because we serve an incredible, good, gracious God. So let us take from the table. Let us break the bread that represents his body, dip it in the juice and understand the sacrifice he made so that we can be alive, so that we can worship, so that we can sing, so that we can rejoice. He made a way when there was no way. Amen.